Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Gear Battles podcast. My name is Carl Reilert and today I'll be continuing the story of the First World War. So far in previous episodes we've talked about the origins of the war and the first two years of actual fighting in 1914 and 1915. And today we move on to the year 1916. In particular the battles of Verdun and the Somme. Europe entered the year 1916 exhausted by one and a half years of conflict, of a scale hitherto unimaginable, and there was still no end in sight to the war, as countries became forced to pour their entire resources into a struggle for victory, the war had a profound effect on citizens at home, as well as those on the front line. Most accepted without complaint the profound hardship incurred. The expected financial collapse did not occur and there was understandably considerable economic turbulence. Writes the historian Michael Howard, insurance rates were pegged, government loans were oversubscribed, printed currency replaced gold, labour shortages produced soaring wages and government contracts created unprecedented prosperity for some sections of the business classes. By the end of 1915, the mutual blockade between the belligerents was beginning to bite. Exports declined, prices rose, inflation resulting from the growing flood of paper money affected people's living standards. The combined pressures of the blockade and the demands of the armed forces resulted in growing shortages of food, fuel and transport, and during 1916 the civilian population began to seriously suffer. Everywhere, governments assumed powers over the lives of their citizens to an unprecedented degree. In Britain, as an example, a Defence of the Realm Act was rushed through Parliament and the so-called War Book implemented which gave control to the government over ports, railways, shipping, insurance rates and much more. Many places in the workforce left by men who went to the front were filled by women. Women had been organising themselves before the war in the suffragette movement to demand the vote, and now became indispensable in offices, factories and farms across the country, taking over many traditional male roles such as bus drivers and railway porters and guards. 
together with the rapid diminishing of the servant class as men enlisted in the armed forces, this changed the whole balance of society in the process. By 1918, that change was reflected in Britain in a new Representation of the People Act, by which the vote was extended from 7 million to 21 million people, including women over the age of 30. Britain had previously been mostly isolated from the horrors of war by the English Channel and North Sea, but now modern technology removed that protection. In January 1915, two Zeppelin airships attacked the eastern coastal towns of Great Yarmouth and Kings Lynn, killing four civilians but causing little significant damage. Further attacks happened through the air, but the Zeppelins were vulnerable to poor weather conditions, and their size made them an easy target for British fighter pilots and anti-aircraft gun. From spring 1917, the Germans would turn to planes, and on the 13th of July, in one air raid, killed 162 civilians in London. Such incidents naturally increased anti-German feeling among the British public. The French economy suffered greatly, as 40% of her coal deposits and 90% of her iron ore were in land under German occupation. But importantly, she retained access to the resources of the wider world, so her excellent armaments industry did not suffer. The French capital, Paris, was not far from the battlefront, so although not besieged, was in imminent peril of such a fate. Ambulances could frequently be heard transporting wounded men from stations to hospitals. Many shops shut because their staff had joined the army, as did all theatres save a few early cinemas. The French government, like that of Britain, was a broad-based coalition and initially left the conduct of the war to the military leadership. In their case, General Joffre. There was as yet no inclination to make any kind of compromise to make peace. Traditional patriotism of the right, embodied in the president, Raymond Poincaré, united with the Jacobinism of George Clemenceau in determination to win the war. In Britain, the government, under the relaxed leadership of Herbert Asquith, initially left the conduct of the war in the hands of Lord Kitchener, an experienced military general. He is most famous today for the recruitment poster, which bears his image, appealing for volunteers. He died in the 5th of June, 1916, on his way to Russia, to attend negotiations with Tsar Nicholas II, when his ship struck a German mine off the coast of Orkney and sank. The response to the recruitment campaign was immediate, and by the end of 1914, a million men had signed up to join the British Army. However, by the end of 1915, the supply of volunteers was drying up. The Liberal government attempted to avoid imposing conscription, and a series of half-measures were attempted, until May 1916, when it reluctantly introduced compulsory military service for all men between 18 and 41. Britain now had about a million men under arms, with a total of 38 infantry divisions. 
Nevertheless, the French forces were still much larger, some 96 divisions. Undoubtedly, the French had borne the brunt of the war on the Western Front and expected their British allies to start contributing more. In December 1915, the Allies met at Chantilly in northern France to discuss strategy for the following year. Agreement was reached for a series of simultaneous offensives against the Central Powers. The action on the Western Front, it was concluded, would take part at the River Somme during the summer to allow Britain sufficient time to train and to equip her new volunteers. It would also allow the Russians to recover from the disasters of 1915 and to gear up their industry for the production of armaments and equipment. The Germans, for their part, were encouraged by their successes on the Eastern Front in 1915, but realised that the total defeat of Russia was still an unlikely prospect. The strategic position was therefore much the same, for while the Russians refused to make a separate peace, the Germans were compelled to fight on two fronts. General Falkenhayn realised that if his army stood back and waited, the Allies would only grow stronger, mobilising their industrial and military strength for war. He was therefore intent on seeking a decisive encounter in the West, believing the French nation and her politicians were not strong enough to withstand the terrible rigours of war for much longer. The target chosen by the German High Command to attack was Verdun. While it had little strategic importance in itself, it lay at the apex of a vulnerable salient, and because of its history was a powerful symbol of French national security. For centuries, Verdun had been a bastion protecting France against invasion. It had been besieged in the Thirty Years' War, again a hundred years later, during the Revolutionary Wars, and in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, it had been the last of the great French fortresses to capitulate. In 1914, Verdun was one of the most modern and formidable defensive complexes in Europe. With 20 major and 40 smaller forts arranged in concentric circles and built on crests of undulating ground, it was an imposing obstacle. The historian Alexander Watson writes that the main object of the Germans was not to take Verdun, merely to threaten it. The French government could not afford to abandon for political reasons, and so would be forced into a battle of attrition, where the Germans would hopefully break their enemy. The German armies would inevitably suffer losses in their own attack, but these, Falkenhayn hoped, would be minimised by good staff works, the element of surprise, and above all, massive artillery superiority. The Germans launched their attack on the 21st of February after a nine-hour bombardment with nearly 1,000 guns. The fortifications were not as strong as they appeared for they were in a state of disrepair and Joffre, wrongly calculating that Verdun would remain quiet, had removed its heavy guns. The German advance was very gradual, just one or two miles in the first three days, but then they made a significant gain with the capture of Fort Duermont, tactically the most significant of the fortresses, which dominated the northern approaches to Verdun. The shaken French appointed a new commander of the armies of Verdun. Marshal Philippe Patin was tasked with restoring the morale of his soldiers and driving back the German offensive.
Pétain was adept at defensive warfare and amassed a huge array of French artillery on the left bank of the River Moise. Relentless attacks and bombardments were carried out throughout March, April and into May, but the Germans made barely any progress. Attrition cut both ways as the French inflicted as many losses as they themselves suffered, and the artillery of both sides created a nightmare landscape such as the world had never before seen. In June, the Germans made gains, but at a heavy cost. On the 7th of June, Fort Vaux fell after a desperate hand-to-hand fight inside its walls. The furthest point of the German advance was reached on the 23rd of June, when they were stopped in front of Fort Souville, the very last fortification before Verdun itself. When the Allies launched their offensive on the Somme on the 1st of July, the Germans could no longer keep attacking Verdun, and the French eventually recovered their lost positions in October. The 11-month-long Battle of Verdun ended up costing both sides more than 300,000 men. For the French, it was a magnificent victory, but one that had nearly shattered their army. For the Germans, it was an undeniable setback, which cost Falkenhayn his job. Kaiser Wilhelm summoned Hindenburg, with Ludendorff at his side, to take his place as Chief of the General Staff. In the spring and early summer of 1916, General Joffre of France pressured the British to begin the campaign on the Somme as soon as possible to help divert the German forces away from Verdun. General Haig of Britain, however, was cautious and preferred to delay as he recognised that the new volunteers needed training. The German frontline system, behind a wide belt of barbed wire, consisted of three trench lines, complete with deep dugouts and a system of linking communication trenches. They made use of concrete to give dugouts, command headquarters and observation posts much greater resistance to shell fire. Rural villages were incorporated wholesale into the front line, with ordinary buildings and cellars reinforced with concrete that converted cottages into shell-proof fortresses. In addition, strong earthwork redoubts were built behind the front line, often on higher ground. The Allied offensive started finally on the 1st of July, preceded by a week-long artillery bombardment in which a million and a half shells were fired. Also, as a part of the preparation, tunnelers dug under the German lines, planting mines that were set to explode at the moment the offensive began. Such was the scale of the bombardment that the British command expected a quick breakthrough. Instead, as troops made their way across no man's land, they discovered that many of the shells had been defective, and had failed to explode, and so the barbed wire was still mostly intact. Also, the German defences were stronger than expected, and the British failed to coordinate their infantry and artillery effectively. As soon as the shelling stopped, signalling the start of the advance, the German soldiers had been able to take up position behind their machine guns, and found the slowly advancing line of enemy troops to be easy targets. On the first day of the battle, 
the British Army sustained 57,000 casualties, including 19,240 dead, for only a very modest advance on the right flank. The next weeks of fighting witnessed extraordinary numbers of casualties. Both sides used more aircraft than before, and so each also developed the use of anti-aircraft guns. Although quite primitive, as the gunners gained experience, they became more accurate, and the pilots had to take evasive action. By the end of the battle, 20 weeks after the initial bombardment, the Allies had succeeded in advancing seven miles, but the desired breakthrough had not been made. Allied casualties were some 620,000, while those of the Germans are disputed, but possibly a similar number. General Haig was heavily criticised for the human cost of the Battle of the Somme and the failure to achieve much in spite of the casualty toll. Others argue the British generals had no other strategic option. France was well accustomed to the pain of continental warfare, but for Britain it was a new experience. What is certain is that the huge loss of life affected not only the morale of the fighting men, but also the view of the war on the home front. Recruitment figures fell noticeably in spite of campaigns to boost numbers. The legacy of the Battle of the Somme in the British group memory was a picture of incompetent generalship and pointless sacrifice. In Britain in particular, the first day of the Somme became the main prism through which the conduct of the whole of the Great War has been viewed. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The main Allied success of 1916 came from the Russians, perhaps surprisingly after their disasters of the previous year. The year began badly when in March they attacked in the northern part of the front, towards Vilnius in Lithuania. But in spite of a superiority in numbers of not only men, but also guns and ammunition, they were repulsed with a loss of some 100,000 men. 
Nonetheless, they kept their promise to their allies by launching in June an attack on the Galician front under General Alexei Brusilov. Brusilov proposed his forces should attack across the entirety of the southwestern front, confusing the enemy and hopefully causing them to collapse at one point. The planning for the offensive was exceptionally detailed, with close cooperation between infantry and artillery. The immediate availability of reserves to exploit success, and above all, the measures taken to secure surprise. Brusilov also focused on command posts, roads and other important targets in an attempt to disrupt the enemy's communications and to weaken its command and control of the front. Brusilov's strategy was put into action earlier than planned as the Italians were in dire need of help to the south. The 5th Battle of the River Isonzo from the 9th to 15th of March 1916 produced the same disappointing results for the Italians as the previous four Battles of Isonzo. The Austro-Hungarians then counter-attacked on the 15th of May, targeting the Italian left flank at Trentino. If they had been able to break through, it would have been disastrous for the Italian army. The Russian offensive of Brusilov tore a 20-mile gap in the Austrian armies, penetrated to a depth of 60 miles and took half a million prisoners. In many places, whole units surrendered to the Russians, especially those made up of minority nationalities, who were no longer willing to sacrifice their lives for the sake of an empire to which they felt no great attachment. As Austro-Hungarian desertions reached epic proportions, their commander-in-chief, Konrad, appealed for help from the Germans once more. The German price for agreeing to provide more reinforcements was that all Austrian forces in Galicia would henceforth operate under German control. Conrad was furious, but had no choice but to accept this humiliation. Nevertheless, the Austrians, now bolstered by the German reinforcements, were able to stall the Russian attack. Their resolve stiffened as German divisions filtered into the line, forming solid blocks to further Russian advances. Brusilov's offensives continued deep into September, but the rate of Russian casualties was rising steeply. Another concern was that the desertion rate from the Russian armies was beginning to escalate amidst a growing weariness of the war. To the Russian command, it had become apparent that ultimate victory was dependent on defeating Germany, which seemed as unlikely as ever. One consequence of the relative success of the Brusilov offensive was to convince Romania that now was the time to join the Entente Allies. The Romanian government had ambitions of expanding their nation by absorbing the Romanian-speaking region of Transylvania, part of Austria-Hungary, and also Eastern Moldavia, also known as Bessarabia, which was part of the Russian Empire. They had no intention of abandoning their neutrality until the course of the war became clear, and they could be confident of achieving their national goals. 
Romania was placed in a difficult position by the entry of Turkey and Bulgaria into the war, followed by the defeat of Serbia. Before the war, 80% of her trade had sailed out to the Danube and through the Dardanelles to the markets of Western Europe and the United States. However, the war had closed down the route and the Romanians were forced to completely restructure their foreign trade, which led to a deep recession. Many members of the Romanian royal family and politicians were overtly pro-German, but the country's best opportunities for territorial expansion were at the expense of Austro-Hungary. The perceived cultural affinities with France were also important in pulling Romania in the direction of the Entente. The British promised the acquisition of Transylvania if it joined the Allies, and the Russian successes meant that it was now or never. The Romanians were aware that if the Russians occupied Transylvania and Bukovina themselves, then they would never voluntarily relinquish them. These provinces, therefore, were the price demanded by the Romanians for joining the war. Romania declared war on Austro-Hungary on the 27th of August 1916 and promptly invaded Transylvania. Hindenburg reacted quickly and sent two armies, the Army of the Danube, commanded by General Mackinson, and the Ninth Army, led by General Falkenhayn, eager to repair his reputation on the battlefield, whose orders were to rebuff the invasion and to attack Romania from the west. The Romanian army was still recovering from the recent Balkan Wars, had failed to modernise, and it quickly became apparent were no match for the German military. Their armies quickly collapsed, and Mackensen entered Bucharest in triumph on the 6th of December, and the Romanians were forced to admit defeat. Romanian losses had been staggering. Some 250,000 soldiers had been killed, almost a third of them mobilised just three months before. Mackensen's martial regime, which replaced the civilian government, was especially harsh, as the Germans considered the occupied territories, resources, legitimate plunder. Over the next year, they ravaged the country for much-needed supplies of oil, grain, farm animals and wood. Citizens were ordered to hand over two-thirds of their food supplies to the military authorities, and failure to do so was punished by imprisonment or death. All told, the entry of Romania into the war was a disaster for the Allies, and a morale-boosting victory for the Central Powers. By the end of 1916, the countries of Europe had strained every sinew to mobilise all their resources to the cause. Young men had become a national resource to be measured in millions. But millions of arms meant millions of casualties. Germany's army was still second to none and retained some hope for a final victory. The horrors of war would continue into the next year without an end in sight. My name is Card Rydert and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. Feel free to leave comments on the Facebook page or you can write to me directly at carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net. It's always great to hear from you. Next week, I'll be moving on to the year 1917 and talking about the Eastern Front. 
and focusing in particular on the Russian Revolution. I hope you can join me. Until then, all the best, and speak then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.